Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Bershon. I teach film and literature at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I delivered to my students in the fall of 2021 on the subject of planting a naysayer in an essay. This is from a course on argument and analysis, and uh, it doesn't have a ton to do with science fiction, fantasy, or horror, but it's great content if you've always wondered how to make a better argument. So, you know, I, I often say this, like, oh, this is my favorite lecture. This is one of my faves. Um, this is one of the ones I love very much. Uh, even though I have other ones where I'm like, this one, it's really this one. It's chapter eight, by the way. <laughs> they say, I say 100%. My favorite chapter is chapter eight. But chapter six, it's up there. It's up there. Um, because it's certainly something that I didn't do when I was writing in my undergraduate work in university. We weren't really taught how to write research papers. It's like the prof just kick you into the deep end of the pool and say, hope you can swim. Um, and we certainly weren't told that it would be a good idea when we're doing our research, when we're doing that planning process, that if we come across an article that disagrees with what we want to say, that we ought to include that. It'd be the last thing we'd think we'd have thought to do back then. If I came across an article that, that disagreed with what I wanted to say, I simply wouldn't have included it. And then later on, when I got a little bit more information about how to construct academic arguments that I needed to be fair uh, in constructing these arguments, I would include naysayers, but I would not identify that they were naysayers. And so consequently, I would screw my whole argument up. Uh, I got into trouble at work when I was a minister. Um, which I know comes as a shock to many of my students and probably people who follow this online and be like, well, I say what? Um, but yeah, I was a minister for a while and I was a youth minister in particular with, uh, with, uh, with an evangelical uh, conference or denomination, as we say. Um, and uh, I'm a big fan of role-playing games. And I got into uh, in with this youth group, and this was in the 1990s, so this was already well past the point of the 1980s when there was legit, this was a thing, a satanic panic, satanic panic about things like heavy metal and horror movies and fantasy role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons. You know, this was evil stuff and you needed to watch out for it because your kid would commit suicide or like get into a murder pact or something like that uh, or learn real magic. Um, yes, that legit concerns uh, on the parts of the people who were opposed to this. And so um, I thought, you know, here we were, it was the 90s. I thought we'd evolved and many Many of the youth in this youth group that I was beginning to work with were already playing a role-playing game. Now, it was a superhero role-playing game, but it was a role-playing game nonetheless. And I played one that was based on Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And so I thought, well, that's safe. Tolkien was a Catholic. Um, and so here we go. And we started playing, and about a year or so later, I got myself into, like, the word got out, as it were, that uh, that this is what we were up to. And I got myself in seriously hot water. <clears throat> there were people who, you know, it was a star chamber thing. My job was on the line. I was in big trouble. And so I crafted a document that was supposed to be my defense. And unfortunately, I made that thing so damn fair 
<laughs> like I was like, you know, I, I planted a ton of naysayers. Let's put it this way. I put a ton of naysayers into this document. I was like, so this is what, you know, some people think that it makes people commit suicide and some people think that it makes them, you know, get into Satanism or something like that. And I didn't qualify. I didn't defeat those arguments. That was ultimately what I didn't do. I planted a naysayer, but I never got around to really responding to those naysayers because I was trying to be so fair. And it's important that we be fair, as we're going to see. Um, but when we plant a naysayer, we absolutely have to recognize that it is our naysayer. And if we can't defeat that naysayer, then either we need to change our thesis and get on board with what the naysayer has to say, or we need to work harder at ensuring that we are not just putting a naysayer in, my te- in, our, in our text, but that we are responding to what they say uh, adequately. Graf and Birkenstein say, as we argue throughout this book, writing well does not mean piling up uncontroversial truths in a vacuum, or in my case, controversial (laughs) concepts. I don't even think they were truths, really, Um, but uh, controversial concepts just piling them up. Here's a whole bunch of stuff. Somebody said that so-and-so committed suicide because of this game. Um, We need to do more than that. We need to engage others in a dialogue or debate. That's what I didn't do. That was the step that I missed completely, was that I did not engage my naysayers in dialogue or debate. I just listed information off. Not only by opening your text with a summary of what others have said, that's just which is what I did. I, I I summarized what all these people had said, and then and I did respond. I, I got into a little bit of a debate, but I didn't defeat them, as it were. Uh, not only by opening your text with a summary of what others have said, but also by imagining what others might say against your argument as it unfolds. Now, here Graf and Birkenstein are talking about an imaginary naysayer that we come up with while we're writing. We think like, oh, maybe somebody would say, well, wait a second, what about this? Um, But in our case, in our course, we don't have to do that because as we already know, if you take Alperovitz's side, Asada is your naysayer. If you take Asada's side, Alperovitz is your naysayer. So we have naysayers in those situations. Uh, The Godzilla track, we don't have a naysayer. Not yet. We will. Um, But right now we've got Tsutsui, and rifle largely in concert with each other. They're agreeing with what each other has to say. Godzilla, the original 1954 film, is a misunderstood classic, and it is a metaphor for the dropping of the atomic bomb, but they have naysayers in their texts. They're embedded, but they're there, okay? Um, so we don't necessarily have to imagine what others might say. We, we can find naysayers in the sources that we are working with. Um, but we wanted, I want us to talk about this because, you know, with the assignment of doing a synthesis, you have to synthesize Asada and Alperovitz. You're, you've got naysayer galore. You've got serious naysayer work. Now, if you're doing uh, the agreement zone of Tsutsui and Rifle, you don't necessarily have to cram a naysayer into your informative synthesis, at least not at this point. But it's not a bad idea to include the naysayers that Rifle and Tsutsui are working with simply because it generates that conversation that we've been talking about since the beginning of the semester. That rather than simply, as we have here, piling up on controversial truths in a vacuum, you are working with the controversy that generated the arguments that you're synthesizing. 
Okay. Um, but when you're writing a research paper for other courses, you don't want to just stack up stuff that everybody's already said and that everybody knows and that no one, you know, no one contests these things. If you write a paper where it's like the sky is blue, the sky is blue, trees grow, photosynthesis, um, why, why bother with that paper? Aside from potentially just handing in a, the sort of research reports that we do often in grade school. In university, we're looking to go beyond that and to generate new arguments. And again, I've got to stress this. That doesn't mean that you have to go up, the, go up against the experts and say, I disagree all the time. Right? We learned last week that our position can be yes, but that we need to say yes in a way that adds something to the conversation. So if we can't find a naysayer, we may want to anticipate who might say no to the things that we're arguing. And if we can't do that, then there's a really good possibility that our thesis simply isn't sophisticated enough. It's not the sort of thesis that we should be generating at the university level. It is too simple. So we get to ratchet it up until we can... It's not ratcheting it up until you find controversy. But to some degree, you, you do want to find a space where you're saying something that <clears throat> generates the paper. Because if we're just writing about uncontroversial truths, that's, that's one of the places where I think we run into that problem of uh, writer's block. Writer's block often is the result of saying something that's so flat and uninteresting and uncontroversial that there's you know, the, the question in the mind of the imaginary reader whom you are writing for is why should I even care about reading this? This is basic information. It's common knowledge. Um, Graf and Birkenstein say, so Graf and Birkenstein say that we should plant a naysayer. We should, if, if we can find one in a secondary source, that's the ideal situation. If we can't find one in an, a secondary source, maybe try find, finding one in a source that isn't necessarily scholarly. And you check with your profs. Always check with your profs. Say, hey, by the way, can I use, you know some guy on Reddit. Can I use, you know, if you're writing, if you're right, so I, I teach film, you're writing for a film class. Can I use a professional film critic's ideas about this movie, their response, their review about this movie to generate my argument? Uh, it doesn't mean that you're going to be quoting them throughout, but simply to sort of get the argument started. Uh, quite recently, this was a, an approach that I used in an article that I'm, uh, that I wrote about um, steampunk and the movie Mortal Engines. And I used uh, pop culture uh, professional critics to launch the argument. I responded to things they said about the film as a way of starting my argument. So it's, it's often a great launching pad for our argument. It can, it can also often work well for an introductory strategy. Again, for the synthesis, you're just working with those two sources. You don't need to go looking outside of them to find yourself naysayers to include in your informative synthesis. But in the larger um, work of writing research papers, uh, the one that you're going to write later in this class or ones that you are writing for other courses, uh, we want to plant a naysayer. And, and we do that by anticipating objections. Graf and Birkenstein say about anticipating objections, paradoxically, the more you give voice to your critics' objections, the more you tend to disarm those critics, especially if you go on to answer their objections in convincing ways. And again, going back to my example, my anecdotal example, 
I gave voice to my critics' objections. Oh my gosh, I can anticipate the objections, and I'll tell you why. Because I grew up during the satanic panic. I knew what people objected to in the church about Dungeons and Dragons. I was fully aware of it. It was why I had switched to playing a role-playing game that was based on J.R.R. Tolkien's work. Because it felt like it would fly under the radar. I was mostly right about that. Um, but I knew what people's problems were with D&D. I simply didn't agree with them. But I also didn't have the information that I needed to respond to those objections in what we see here as convincing ways. I think that today, I certainly could. I could go into our library database and I could locate a bunch of psychological articles that talk about ways in which role-playing games are being used to address really severe, um, like not, you know, so like really, really like you need, you know, really, really intense mental treatment, but like there are a number of uh, mental health uh, conditions and issues that people have addressed by using role-playing games. Like if somebody can't talk about their trauma directly, they'll get them to play a role-playing game. And by observing the way that they play that game, they learn something about that trauma. They're able to uh, sort of learn by, uh, you know, the, the same sort of derivative thing that we see with Godzilla as metaphor for the atomic bomb. I didn't know any of that back then. Furthermore, uh, I also know that statistically speaking, um, the number of people who committed suicide... The, the numbers that were sort of uh, addressed saying, oh, Dungeons and Dragons caused these suicides, which is a difficult thing to prove. Um, but let's just say that they were right. It was so far beneath the national average for suicides that the conclusion you ought to come to isn't that they cause it, but that they actually prevent it. That, that is to say that games like D&D uh, actually are beneficial to mental health. So these are things I know now, but they weren't things that I knew at the time. So I gave voice to my critics' objections, but I didn't disarm those critics. And consequently, I sort of, you know, made my own noose. Um, and so you have to go on to answer objections in convincing ways. You don't just throw a naysayer into your essay in a sort of fill-in-the-blanks kind of way. This is something that I, I keep repeating over and over again throughout this course. Don't just do what they say I say recommends without rigorously considering why you're doing it and whether or not you've fully committed to that. It's like with the templates. You don't just fill in the blanks on the templates without thinking whether or not the information you're shoving in there actually makes sense or that you could develop it in some way later on in, in your paper. Likewise, you don't just plant a naysayer. You don't just anticipate objections unless you know that you can respond to those objections in convincing ways. And this is really important for the Alperovitz Asada group, those of you who are writing about Hiroshima. Because a lot of my students tend to side with Alperovitz. They really, really, I, I think they get sold on it because they do the summary, or maybe it's just because they believe that America is this great big military giant that needs to be stopped. They, they have some sort of anti-American sentiment, but they roll around to Asada. Uh, and then I think Asada is also somewhat hurt by the very academic tone with which he writes his work. And so Alperovitz is on the one side going, America shouldn't have dropped the bomb. They didn't need to. It was totally unnecessary. And students are like, yes, it was totally unnecessary to kill all those people. Because that feels right, doesn't it? And then Asada says, well, wait a second. What about this entrenched military? What about what, about what, would have hap what could have happened if 
they hadn't dropped the bomb or the fact that even after they dropped the bomb, uh, the, the Japanese military still wanted a fight. And after they dropped the second bomb, the Japanese military still wanted a fight. What about those things? The students, the student, a lot of students are quite resolute at that point. They're like, no, 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 no. Alperovitz is right. Maybe Alperovitz is right, but you have to ask this question. When you're synthesizing Alperovitz and Asada, who wins? Not whether, not, not, we, this isn't asking whether or not Alperovitz is right, but does his argument hold up against Asada? Can you use Alperovitz to answer Asada's objections in convincing ways? I'm going to tell you right now, I don't think you can. That isn't to say that I don't think that Alperovitz's thesis isn't necessarily correct. He might be right, but you're going to need some other sources when you get to your research paper to really work that through. So on the synthesis, I'm, I'm, I'm unconvinced at this point in my career that you can make this, the informational synthesis work with, um, with Asada and Alperovitz and have Alperovitz win, unless you're completely ignoring some of Asada's really crucial points. Uh, and Asada is a difficult read, so I understand why some students would, you know, object to having to include him in the objections. Uh, he's difficult. He's academic. But that's the kind of reading that you're going to be doing at university. So you got to get used to it. So we've got planting a naysayer. We anticipate objections. So to plant a naysayer, we anticipate objections. And then we, we represent those objections fairly. And again, I did this. I did this. I <laughs> represented the objections to games like Dungeons and Dragons by the church fairly. I didn't say this is complete hogwash. Like, for example, uh, that it might lead to people really getting into real magic. That requires a belief in real magic um, that I wasn't totally on board with, especially when I consider the kind of magic that you can do in D&D. I'm going to tell you right now, if I, had, if, if I could have gotten a gateway into using real magic like the kind in Dungeons & Dragons... Don't you think I would have? I mean, don't you think that all the people who've been playing D&D would have actually shown someone how to throw a fireball? I mean, you want to talk about military might. Uh, that's a game changer right there. Never mind all the other stuff that you could do. And, and all these people are doing this in their adolescence when we make all sorts of bad decisions. It would have been crazy if that, if that was a potentially a real thing. But I, I was like, no, you know what? I'm going to represent this objection fairly. I'm going to say that this is something that people are concerned about. And I'm not going to say, are you nuts? But this was the same sort of thing that rolled around when, you know, Harry Potter came out. And there was there was object there were objections at the time that, like, Harry Potter could lead to people learning how to do real magic. And I'm like, if we could Alohomora, we'd do it. We'd absolutely do it. We'd Leviosar our way through life. So, you know, but, you know, you represent the objection fairly. And that's that believing game. You play the believing game so that you're not saying to your audience, you guys are idiots. Because if you come out the gates constructing an argument and going, the opposition here is just a bunch of shitheads, <laughs> they put their shields up. And you're not convincing anyone of anything. Maybe your argument's really good. And maybe what you have to say is really important. But if you don't represent the objections of your naysayers fairly, the very minds you need to change with your arguments will not be listening to you. And you might say, Dr. Prashant, how does this have any relevance to this course? It doesn't ultimately, because you're not really changing anybody's mind, right? Whose mind do you need to change about either of these things? This is practice, though. 
for when you do, for when you're in the workplace and a policy comes along that you don't like and you want to oppose it, or you want to write a letter to your government saying, hey, I'm not particularly impressed with the policies that you've put in place or the actions that you've been doing lately. You want to write a letter to your MLA, whoever it might be, whatever moment it might be. It could just be, which movie are we going to watch tonight? That's an argument. And you can say, I totally get why you guys want to go watch this, you know, whatever it might be. But, you know, you want to represent objections fairly. When writers, this is Graf and Birkenstein, when writers make the best case they can for their critics, they actually bolster their credibility with their readers. How does this work? Well, if I'm sitting in an audience and I have objections and you say, I know that some of you have objections and you identify the very objection that I've got sitting in my brain at that moment. I go, oh, wait a second. So they're aware of this. Interesting. Interesting. And then they say, but stick with me. I think I'm going to be able to convince you why that may not be the best choice. Not why you're all a bunch of absolute shitheads, but why that might not be the best choice. Representing objections fairly. So at that moment, the person sits and stops and says, oh, okay, wait a second. Well, they, they, know, they know about this. They know about this, but they don't agree with me. I wonder, I wonder what that's about. And I know from personal experience that I'm curious at that point, and now I'm paying attention. I'm still cynical as all get out and probably far too arrogant for my own good, but I'm listening at that point. So we want to plant a naysayer by anticipating objections. We want to represent those objections fairly, and we want to answer those objections persuasively. And this is the part where, you know, I'm curious, I'm interested, I'm listening, and then quite often the person who is speaking blows it because they don't answer the objections persuasively. They answer the objections, but they don't answer the objections persuasively. And this is, this is probably the most difficult thing in this list. I will remind you that this is where I tripped at the finish line with my uh, document that I'd crafted. One of the people who was sitting on the committee that needed to judge me um, for having played Dungeons and Dragons or a fantasy role-playing game with our youth um, was a math professor at Nate. Now, this guy was about as logical as you could possibly hope for. This is actually the guy who said to me, statistically speaking, the number that you've included here, and, and this was the whole suicide, how many, how many people who play D&D commit suicide annually? He said, what this number demonstrates is that this game is preventative when it comes to suicide. This game would keep people from killing themselves. But that was something that I had not included in the document. He sat me down after the whole thing had blown over and he said, you know, you did a really good job of researching all of this and you did a decent job of responding to it. He said, but where you went completely wrong is that you tried to be too fair. You, when you responded to these arguments, you didn't defeat them. And so ultimately you gave your audience the option to choose. He didn't use this terminology, but using the terminology that we're talking about today to choose your naysayer. Well, you don't want to do that with your argument. And that's one of the things about a written argument that's distinct from when we're just standing there talking with somebody and we're in an argument. We can't you know, walk away and check our research and we can't revise the thing that we just said. And usually our, our brain is in, you know, amygdala mode and, and it's, it's not thinking clearly. Um, but when we write an argument, 
say for a speech or for a paper or for whatever it is. And I want you to remember this for down the road. So if you have to give a presentation at work and you know it's going to be argumentative, it's going to be controversial, it might be something that people are going to put back, push back on, you ought to write your argument out first. Even if you're not going to read it off of a page, you should still write that thing out first because it's going to ensure that you have thought through your argument to the point where you arrive at this point of answering objections persuasively. Okay. A lot of students trip at this at this line. They don't think that they have any more to say. They've they've done their they feel like they've done their due diligence because they'll check off the boxes of like, well, I used my sources and I said what they had to say, and but there's no answering of objections persuasively. Now on the synthesis again, you're relying on rifle and you're relying on uh Tsutsui and you're relying on Asada and you're relying on Alperovitz to generate the content. But this is, this is now again us casting down the road a little bit and saying, okay, how are you going to respond to objections persuasively? Those of you who are doing Alperovitz and Asada will still have to work with this. If you're going to, this was what I was talking about earlier, if you're going to side with Alperovitz at this point, how do you answer Asada persuasively? Because I think Asada answers Alperovitz in a more persuasive manner. He answers Alperovitz's objections more persuasively. Often the best way to overcome an objection, says Graf and Birkenstein, often the best way to overcome an objection is not to try to refute it completely, but to agree with certain parts while challenging others. But when we challenge those others, we have to challenge them persuasively. We need to be able to get our reader to arrive at the point, the same point that, you know, we want them to. We want them to take our thesis with them when they're done reading. We want them to be thinking the way that we do about this particular subject. So we can't just fill in the blank. We can't just throw a naysayer in there. We have to, you know, we, we can anticipate the objections. We have to represent those objections fairly. And then we ultimately have to answer those objections persuasively. And I think that one of the keys to that is to continue to do the research. You keep going. So think again, think about the project of this semester of writing a research paper in slow motion. And instead of being in this class, let's imagine that you were in some other class and you'd been assigned Hiroshima or Godzilla. And in the first week, remember that week one is planning. In the first week, you grabbed Milam and Alperovitz. Well, if you put Milam and Alperovitz together, what do you get? You get the idea that it, it, it was an inhuman act to drop the bomb on Hiroshima. And you get the idea from Al Alperovitz that it wasn't even necessary. So it was in, it was an inhumane act. It was monstrous, absolutely monstrous, and it didn't need to happen. So at that point, you don't have a naysayer. I mean, you've got Alperovitz's embedded ones, but you might continue to do your research, right? You're, you're still working in that first week on your planning, and you come across Asada. And you read Asada, and you go, whoa, wait a second. This guy's like, he's the other side of this argument. Now, Asada never, never disagrees with Milam. Asada never says, oh, it was a perfectly humane thing to do. He thinks it's monstrous as well. Or at the very least, he never argues against its monstrosity. But he talks about its necessity in a different way. 
And we need to be able to identify that and understand that there are differences even in the way that the argument is being constructed at that point. But now I just want you to imagine that that's your experience. You're in your first week of researching this paper. You've got Milam, you've got Alperovitz, you've got Asada. Well, now what do you do? I know what I would have done way back in the day. I'd have tossed Asada out the window because I've got Alperovitz and Milam and I'm well on my way and I just need to go find someone else who agrees with Alperovitz. And I'll tell you, it ain't hard to find people who agree with Alperovitz. Now I've got my three sources, I can write my paper. But maybe my prof knows about Asada. And my prof, you know, when they mark my paper, they say, ah, this is quite good, but you haven't really considered... And they start talking about the things that Asada talks about. And that's something I would have missed along the way. So if I get Asada into the mix, now I've, I have to go and I either have to find people who can respond to Asada's points persuasively, or I have to get on board with Asada and somehow reconcile the monstrosity of the bomb, Milam's idea of the inhumanity of that moment. On the other side, I read, you know, I read Brothers, and then I read Rifle, and everybody's agreeing. Oh, this is so nice. But maybe I watch Godzilla myself, as some of you have. And I don't agree. I'm like, this, this is not... This is a classic? Now, part of that might be that I haven't watched any other movies from the 1950s. You might want to stop and take a moment to go watch at least The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms and compare it. Because then you could say, okay, well, there's this other giant monster movie from this period. And, you know, it's kind of hokey. It's kind of silly. It's kind of goofy. It's not half as serious as Godzilla. Um, but, you know, you've got, you've got brothers, you've got Rifle, they all agree. Come up on Tsutsui. Tsutsui mostly agrees, but Tsutsui also has a number of naysayers that he's embedded into his introduction that you can, you can be like, okay, well, there are people who think this is ridiculous. I guess I, maybe I need to go and find some of them, right? But maybe, let's just let's carry on with this. Maybe you're still convinced that Godzilla isn't as serious as Rifle thinks it is, or as Tsutsui thinks it is, or as Brothers thinks it is. But I want you to stop just for a moment and consider what you're doing at that point. Three Godzilla scholars all think there's some really solid stuff there, and you want to argue with them. Hmm. You might want to stop and check, you know, what you're doing at that point. Is this just you, like, are you trying to impress your prof because you have this idea in your head that, that arguing the no position is going to show just how brilliant you are? probably not going to work out for you. Now, I have to also admit that anyone who's taking their academic career and devoting it to Godzilla has a certain sort of bias towards it. Further in, further on, we're going to come to an, uh, an essay, really, by Susan Sontag, who was a film critic and a feminist theorist, and she has an objection that would work that would make us go, okay, well, wait a second, maybe we can use this to naysay, but we'll, we'll get to that. It's more complex than that, but I will let you know, those of you who are in the Godzilla track, because if you're sitting there going like, I don't know, I don't see we have a naysayer here, but you might be able to just even use naysayers from your real life on your research paper uh, when you get further down, because I'll bet money, if you are like any of the students that I've had before, somebody, if it wasn't you at the very least, you might even be your own naysayer. When I began this course and my prof said that we were going to be writing research papers on Godzilla, I thought he was nuts. Um, but it might be somebody in your family. It might, like, my dad couldn't believe that <laughs> we paid tuition so that I could study rubber-suited monsters. Um, 
you, you know, you, you've got an objection there. It's not a scholarly one. That's okay. You don't need it to be scholarly necessarily. Okay. Just sort of giving you the shape and the possibilities of different ways to include naysayers. We can include them from scholarly secondary sources if we find them. If we find them, we have to make sure that we've got other scholarly secondary sources because you can't just bring Jim's blog or YouTube channel or shit some guy said on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. Nobody says anything on TikTok. Um, to defeat, not at least not that, you know, would be usable on a paper on Godzilla. To defeat these scholarly sources, you, you defeat a scholarly source with a, another scholarly source, really. And, and, you know, a good argument. Or if we don't have scholarly sources, then we bring in a naysayer who can at least generate the responses that we want to give, you know, answering the question. I mean, there's our naysayer for the Godzilla side. Why would we even bother to study Godzilla? There's a question. Why should we even bother to pay attention to this giant monster movie? If you saw King Kong versus Godzilla this last year and it's, you know, major release you would think what that's 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 something you study at university right but it's this counterintuitive move that we need to be including to not only include the they says of the people who support what we say but the they says of the people who disagree with us so long as we can come to a moment where we can answer their objections fa uh, fairly and persuasively, right? Anticipating where those problems are coming from, but also making sure that we are up to the challenge of defeating them in our writing.